we're in Esther chapter 4, and I'm, I'm starting a new series this morning, and it's called It's About Time. It's About Time. There are two Greek words in the Bible. I'm going to give a lot of background as we get into this series, but there are two Greek words in the Bible that are con- co- commonly translated as time, uh, the Greek word chronos and the word kairos. The meanings of those two words can slide towards each other, but they have their own gist. The word chronos refers to the 24 hours that make up a day and the minutes and the seconds that comprise it. Chronos um, is the, the root for English words like chronic and chronological. It describes the measured and relentless flow of time. Whether you're Bill Gates or you're somebody in the state pen, or you're the president of the United States or a kindergarten, it doesn't matter. You have 24 hours a day, as do all the rest of us. That's chronos. We all have 24 hours a day. Now, we may use them differently, but no one gets one second more or one second less. We all have the same chronos, but we don't all have the same kairos. Kairos doesn't refer to the flow of time, seconds and minutes and minutes and hours and hours in a day. It refers to the right time, the meaningful time, the opportune time. Some people have many kairos moments in their lives, even in their daily lives. Other people have very few and are in danger of missing out on the ones they do have. So by God's design, he made this world so that it's comprised of both chronos, that flow of time, and kairos, those special moments. God created time. That's something that St. Augustine said in the 5th century, and that some physicists in recent decades have discovered time is a creation. It came about, but at strategic moments in time, God gives opportunities. He made time, and he manages it. He set us in the 24-hour-a-day flow of time, but he gave opportunities to transcend it. Think of it this way. God placed us in the current of time, and as it flows along, we move with it. It's a river that carries us inexorably towards our death or Christ's return, whichever comes first. But on that river, there are islands to explore, opportunities to exploit. The river is Kronos time. The islands are Kairos time. We can't escape Kronos, but we can miss Kairos. We can drift right by it. My goal in this message and those that are going to follow is to encourage, to inspire, and instruct us to take advantage of those Kairos moments. I don't want us to miss those opportunities because those are the times when we encounter God. Those are the times when we can do something for him. And those are the change moments in which we experience transformation into the people God desires us and we long to be. I want you to realize that there are those kairos moments, moments of change and opportunity in your life. They're embedded in this chronos dream we live in. That's clear from the Bible. We see it from the very beginning. God ordered his creation in six chronos days, but each of those days was filled with kairos moments. When God called Abraham, he did so within a specific chronology. Later, when God and Abraham entered into solemn agreement, the biblical word is covenant, God laid out a timetable, a chronos table for him. He told him, your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own. 
and will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years and only then come into their inheritance. See, that's 400 years is chronos time. God understands time better than anybody else. Kairos moments, those moments to do good, to honor God and be spiritually formed, they always occur in that chronos dream. So let me give you some examples. God told Joseph that a famine was coming. It would arrive in seven years. It would last for seven years. That's chronos time. After the exodus, God told the Israelites that it's been 38 more years, 40 altogether in the wilderness. That's chronos time. And God has his chronology down pat. He told the Israelites through Jeremiah they would be spending 70 years in Babylon before they'd have the opportunity to come back to their own land. That's chronos time. God, who sees the end from the beginning, knows the timetable for kingdoms and nations and individuals. That's chronos time. But he inserts into that time opportunities, kairos moments. It was in the fullness of time. See, that's kairos, Galatians 4.4, that Jesus was born. It was at just the right time, that's Romans chapter 5.6, that he died for the ungodly. God, who alone is immortal, will bring about the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ in its own time, his own time. Kairos again. God knows how to insert those meaningful times into our sequential, sometimes mundane, days and hours and minutes. God's the master of time. When it comes to time, I'm kind of particular. Um, My wife might use a different word. She might say I'm obsessed about it. I set my watch to the atomic clock on which U.S. official time is based, and that's about as good as I can get, but compared to God's time, U.S. official time is a slipshod affair. You know, in December, they're going to have to add nine-tenths of a second to the official clock again. I mean, that's just so sad. How can a country run like that? But God never misses a beat. He's never early. He's never late, not even by nine-tenths of a second. God has never once been taken by surprise. He sees every bend in the river of time. Karen and I like to go canoeing. Imagine you're on a river in a canoe, or better yet, in a kayak. And you can see maybe the next 50 yards or so. So so there's a hornet's nest hanging down from a low branch above the river, and there's a duck swimming near the bank, and there's a tree falling across half the river. But that's about all you can see. And because you're constantly moving with the current, you can't stop and take everything in. Just too much happening. Now imagine that you're looking down on that same river from an airplane, or better yet, from a hot air balloon. You can see the shoals around the next bend. You can see the bridge and the other boaters and the rapids, And you can see what's around the next bend after that one and the one after that one and where the feeder streams flow in and where the river joins the great river. God's perspective is like that. Only he sees everything down to the smallest detail. God is not in time, but time is in him. For God, time does not pass, as Tozer once put it. It remains He sees every moment from the beginning to the end, if there is an end. From his vantage point, it's a simple matter to insert those 
Kairos opportunities into our Kronos timetable. In the middle of a busy day or a busy week, he inserts one of those moments. The Bible uses the word eukairos, the good moment, the favored time. Those moments are formative for us. They change us and they offer us the opportunity to change the world. But we can miss them. Remember Jesus' ominous words to the people of Jerusalem the week that he entered the city for the last time? If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes because you didn't recognize the time, that's kairos in Greek, of God's coming to you. They missed their kairos moment. I don't want that to happen to us. Robert Banks says that with respect to time, Christians are a good deal worse off than many. He says that's especially true of middle-class Christians who have managerial or professional positions or try to combine outside employment with substantial household responsibilities. He writes, Christians and people raised in a Christian setting tend to take their work more seriously than others. They also place a high value on family obligations, and they are often in the forefront of community and charitable associations. The upshot of this commitment to work, community, and family is, as his eldest son commented, Christians are like trains, always on the move, always in a rush, and always late. Does that describe you? If it does, you're at risk of missing those God-ordained transformative moments. Our greed or our fear or our reputation, maybe even just our hurry, can distract us from entering a eukairos, an opportune time, a favorable moment. Here's what I want us to see this morning. We're going to talk a lot more about that in weeks to come. How do you do that? We'll talk about that. But what I want us to see this morning is that even when we see and recognize those opportune times, it's going to take courage for us to take advantage of them. If we do nothing, we'll miss them. That is never pictured more clearly than in the book of Esther. That's why I wanted to start this series with Esther. Esther is a Jewish expatriate living in the winter capital of the Persian Empire, in Susa. But she has kept her ethnic identity secret. No one knows she's a Jew. She enters a Miss Persia beauty contest and is discovered, not unlike the way people get discovered on American Idol today, that this former orphan girl, now Miss Persia, eventually becomes the wife of King Xerxes, and she finds herself living in the lap of luxury with a husband who's in the seat of power. So that's the first part of Esther's story. Okay. Second part of Esther's story revolves around King Xerxes' chief advisor, whose name is Haman. He is Adolf Hitler-like in his hatred of Jews. But remember, no one knows Queen Esther's Jewish. When Haman, who's always railing against the Jews, gets the opportunity, he proposes legislation that will provide an ultimate solution to the Jewish problem. He wants to root out every Jew in the kingdom. In part three of the story, Esther's older cousin, who raised her after her parents died, sends a messenger named Hatak to show her a copy of Haman's legislation. Here's what's past Esther. He wants her to use her influence with the king to countermand this new law. She sends a message 
back to her cousin to explain why that wouldn't work. So we're going to pick up the story from there. This is Esther chapter 4, beginning with verse 10. We'll read down through verse 16. Then she instructed him, this is Hatach, to say to Mordecai, her cousin, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply back to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther's torn. Her cousin who raised her after her parents died. Her cousin wants her to go to the king and plead for her people. But no one goes to the king unbidden, not even the queen, and she hasn't been called for a month. Death is automatic for anyone who barges into the king's presence uninvited unless the king himself extends mercy. When she tells her cousin this, it's her way of saying, look, I'd like to help, but there's nothing I can do. Now, stop there for just a moment. When was the last time you said, there's nothing I can do? I want to help, but there's nothing I can do. When your life is reviewed on the day of judgment, will you find that you turned away from Kairos moments, moments that could have changed the world and changed you, and you did it with the words, there's nothing I can do. Now, to be fair to Esther, she honestly believed there was nothing she could do. The idea that she could enter the king's presence unbidden hadn't even occurred to her. This just wasn't something people did. I wonder how often we've missed life-change moments because we thought, this just isn't what people do. This isn't me. We hear an announcement from the pulpit about helping with the ministry to the homeless, and we think, it's just not me. A non-Christian friend asks us a question that we could answer about the Bible, but we think, I'm going to let the pastor do that. That's not really me. Every time we say, that's not me, there's nothing I can do. The river of time carries us beyond a Kairos moment, and there's no turning back. Once we've passed it, we've passed it. Esther said, that's not me. That's not how it's done. But her cousin Mordecai wouldn't let her off the hook. When she said to him, I can't do what you ask, I would die, he answered, yes, you can. And you don't have to live. Notice the frame of reference for Mordecai's response. He says, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will come from another place. He knew that God could insert a Kairos moment into the Kronos flow at any point from any place he chose. 
And yet his belief that God would make things turn out right did not change his conviction that Esther had a choice to make, one that might even cost her her life. We can learn from this that God generally works through people. He does not, usually at least, skip the intermediary. He doesn't, usually at least, strike the bad guy dead with lightning or miraculously insert money into a a needy person's bank account. Even when it comes to things like healing, the Bible shows God's preference for delivering his blessing through the touch and prayers of others. Now, that should lead us to two conclusions. One, when some person blesses you with money, with a job, a gift, or even with a hug or a word of encouragement, God may well be the one who is giving the money, the job, the gift, the hug, or the encouragement through his agent. He loves to give and speak and work through people. So when you receive something valuable, even a hug, along with being grateful to the person who gave it, recognize God as the giver of these and every other good and perfect gift. But don't stop there. As one of Jesus' people, there are times when you should be God's agent bringing others what God wants to give them, whether money, job, gift, hug, word, or whatever. You need to make yourself available by a verbal offer and an intentional surrender to God to be his agent. That's what the apostle was talking about when he wrote, offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body as instruments of his righteousness. But what if I don't want to be God's instrument? What if I refuse God's rule? Well, if you refuse God's rule, God will overrule. The great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is not a leaf that gets blown from his path. If Esther had chosen not to be God's instrument, God would choose another. But Esther would miss out. And the same thing is true of us. Notice what Mordecai says next. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That's Kairos language. For such a time as this, this was the favorable time, the opportune time, the time when a person can change the world and God can change a person. Our lives and the life of the world are shaped by just such moments. This was not a moment to miss. And yet Esther came perilously close to missing it. It was her cousin's words, and undoubtedly he was God's agent in her life right then, that made the difference. She got up her courage. She had Mordecai rally the Jewish expatriates in in Susa to fast, and she prepared to break the law. I will go to the king, even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Understand, there is a cost in grasping an opportunity, a kairos moment. That's why St. Paul told the Ephesians to redeem the time, to buy back the literally kairos taking advantage of those moments can be costly we need to acknowledge that up front otherwise we'll just keep passing them by it took time and persuasion but Esther realized that she would and could pay the price if I perish I perish now 
we come to a story like Esther's. And by the way, it's a really fun story to read. You should read the whole thing. It won't take you very long. And, and we see it's about kings and it's about queens and ancient times with archaic rules and strange customs. And we can miss its relevance to us. We all, every one of us, if we're Jesus' people, get to play Esther's part. Not as beauty queen, but as God's agent. We will have opportunities, those kairos moments, to serve God's purposes at our expense. Kairos moments always cost something. Not least the expenditure of all those chronos moments that flow around it. We have to spend time to enter God's purposes. And sometimes we have to spend a good deal more than that. So let me apply this ancient story of intrigue to our present story of our lives. This morning, take Mordecai's words to Esther as if they were spoken to you. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Who knows whether you've come to your place for such a time as this? What time is it in your world? What opportunity to change the world and be changed into Christ-likeness exists for you right now? It's going to take courage. Seems like you can't do that. That's not you. Have you come into your job for such a time as this? Have you come into your family for such a time as this? Have you come into Lockwood Church on this communion Sunday or into your neighborhood or into your school for such a time as this? You've been swept along by the ever-flowing current of time. And it's all you can do to keep yourself pointed in the right direction. But here's an island of opportunity. A chance to stand up for God and make a difference for people. What's the need that you've seen? What's the opportunity? Will you take the time? Will you pay the price? Seize the opportunity. All right, let's pray. God, thank you for this opportunity. Help us to enter now this favored time around your table. Meet with us. Change us. Make us your agents for the sake of Christ. We're going to stand together and sing as we do with those who are going to distribute the elements. Come forward, please. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand. The shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land, a home within the wilderness, a rest upon the way, from the burning of the noontide heat and the burden of the day. Upon that cross of Jesus, mine eyes at time can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me, and from my spirit.
talked about making the most of every opportunity. This is an opportunity as we come before the Lord to look at the cross of Jesus Christ, to look at what he did for us on that cross. And there are two things that we want to focus on as we look at the body of the Lord. Paul uses that term, the Lord's body, and that we make a distinction about what happened there. And two things, two very important things happened. One, he shed his blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. He, with the shedding of blood, healed mankind's sin condition. Adam sinned, and it put all of us into sin. And when Jesus performed the act of righteousness, when Jesus paid for our sins and was raised again, he made us righteous so that those found in Jesus Christ have his righteousness. So his shed blood provides for us righteousness. But then the second, he's called the Lamb of God, and his body was pierced for our sin. He was crushed for our iniquities. What he paid in his body paid for my personal sin, not just mankind's, but my personal sins. So as I look at the cross, I consider those two things. His shed blood, which is represented by the cup, and his broken body, which is represented by the bread. As we partake, be mindful of the righteousness you have because of Jesus Christ and the payment for your personal sins that he paid in his body on the tree. Amen.